when Darcy and I were in Bible school out in Wyoming, uh, I was the youth pastor in, in Albin, Wyoming. And, and there in Albin, they traced their history back to four sisters. Uh, these four sisters uh, married men within the community, and everybody is related to those four sisters. There are the Palms, the Lundbergs, the Rheingans, and the Moms. And all four of those families are related to those four sisters. They're all married within those four sisters. And when we would go on overnight retreats as a youth group, my job as a youth pastor was so easy. I would just go to bed as soon as I got tired because I had, didn't have to worry about anything because they were all cousins. So I didn't have to worry about dorm checks or anything like that. And also, I didn't have to worry about misbehavior because they would and did tattle on each other. So I would take those kids anywhere and not worry a single second about any of their behavior. And it's kind of an amazing thing as you look at the community. There are a good number within that community that are related to those four sisters. I think if you were to marry someone in your high school, attending school there, you would have to do a background check just to make sure you weren't related. I think it was for them that they had, came out with the whole DNA testing just so it would make life easier to figure out if they were related or not. I share that with you this morning because in our journey as we've moved verse by verse through the book of Genesis thus far, we come to Genesis chapter 4 verses 17 through 26. And as we come to this passage, the narrative turns and focuses on two distinct families. And as we look at these two families, and as we continue our journey through the book of Genesis, we'll see one of these families, their trail ends this morning. But as we look at the other family, we're going to follow that family through the book of Genesis. And it'll be that family that we uncover that the narrative of Genesis will follow as we move through the book of Genesis. Open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 4, verse 17, if you're not already there. And once you arrive there, stand with me, if you will, and I'll read it aloud for us. Genesis 4, verses 17 through 26. Verse 17 reads this way. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah and the name of the other was Zillah. So Adah bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah, Lamech, said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. 
I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, and we thank you for this opportunity that we have to be here in your house and to be gathered around your word. And Father, I pray that you would open your word to us, that you would give us understanding, that we would hear from you today, Father. So move in our hearts and move in our minds and, and give us understanding. And I pray, Father, you'd take my mind and my heart and my tongue and allow me to share, Father, what you'd have us to hear. Father, nothing more, but certainly nothing less either. And I pray your Holy Spirit would take those words and touch our hearts with them. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at this passage this morning, there are two points that we're going to use to lead us through. The first thing we see is the secular society that takes place. And then we see the sacred society. Now, as you can look at your outline there and as you see from this group of verses, for the most part of our time today, we're going to be looking at the secular society. We'll see just a moment of the sacred society. But this is the beginning of society as we, as we know it today. This is where it all began. Now, verse 17 begins, and it says, Cain. Now, we remember last week where we were when we left Cain. Uh, he had sinned against God. He had failed to worship God in the way that God desired to be worshipped. Cain decided to do it his own way. And as he worshipped God his own way, God rejected his offering. His brother Abel brought an offering that pleased God. Abel himself pleased God because he was willing to approach God in the way that God wanted to be approached. And so God had favor for Abel. Now, Cain did not appreciate God's favor on his brother. And in a fit of rage, Cain killed his brother. The first murder took place there. God had warned him to turn from his anger, but he was unwilling to turn from his anger. He followed through with his anger, and he let his anger lead him and guide him rather than him himself making the decision to turn from his anger. Cain refused to repent. He refused to do it God's way. Now, you can look up at Genesis 4, verse 16 there, and we read this. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This really describes for us the condition of Cain. He, by his own choice, and also as part of the judgment of God, he turned his back on God and went away from God. As he went away from the presence of God, he settled in the land of Nod, away from God. 
And as we look at Cain, as we see him, he is a picture of an unbeliever. He is what an unbeliever looks like. And, and essentially, that's what an unbeliever does. Rejects God, walks away from the presence of God, and doesn't turn back to God. And that's what Cain had done. And that's where we left Cain last week. Now, as we look at verse 17, as it continues, it says, Cain knew his wife. A question that I have been asked multiple times is where did Cain's wife come from? This is a reasonable question as we look at this, as we think about it. And you know what? There's a very simple answer here. Cain married his sister. Now, in our day and age, that seems weird. But we must remember that in this day and age, things were different. Some people think about this and they think, man, how can this be that he would marry his sister? That's just weird. But when we think about that, we're thinking about it in our setting, in our day and age. We think about birth defects that would take place. How can this happen? But remember when this took place. There were no mutant genes at this time. Adam and Eve were created perfect. Their genes had not been affected by the disease of sin. For a period of time, those genes would not have been producing organisms that would, have, that would cause difficulties between those genes. There was no mix-up of wrong genes. So it seems weird to us in our day and age, but there was no other family. We read that God created Adam and Eve. They were the first people. God didn't create any other people. It all began with Adam and Eve. And things were different then. Now, the question we need to ask is when did Cain get married? As we read this, we see Cain knew his wife. This word here, as we think about him having a wife, there is a legal thing that has taken place. A, a legal, uh, they've, they've moved into this legal relationship. There is a formality here. This doesn't say that, that Cain knew his sister. This doesn't say that Cain knew a woman. This says Cain knew his wife. So there is a, a formal arrangement that took place here. We didn't read that Cain had a wife before he killed Abel. But now we see that he has a wife. There's a chance that he could have been married to her before he killed Abel. But if not, somehow he had to convince her to marry him. Even though he had murdered her brother. She had to willingly marry a murderer. We don't read and don't know about the mark that he received. We just read that God gave him a mark. So she would have had to have known that that is who Cain was. 
But nonetheless, we read that Cain knew his wife. It says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. So Enoch is their, their first child. The word that's used here for Enoch, that's translated Enoch, means to initiate. What a fitting name for him, as their family is initiated and begins. This, this next generation now has a starting point. Adam and Eve now have grandkids. The next generation has begun. The torch has gone from Adam and Eve to Cain and now to the next generation. It says there in verse 17, when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. This is kind of a, an interesting development that takes place here. Cain, part of the curse, was to be a wanderer. And we read here that he has concentrated his efforts on building a city. It's kind of funny when we read this, because how many of you were taught in school that our ancestors lived in caves for thousands and thousands and thousands of years? We read here that Adam and Eve's son, Cain, started building a city. Thinking about a city in this day and age, there would be walls of protection for this city. We read about Cain's fear of being murdered. So Cain and his desire to stop being a wanderer settled in the land of Nod, built a home, built a fence of protection around his home. And his family began to grow within the confines of this city. So our ancestors weren't living in cave, caves forever and ever. We see the urbanization of mankind, the urbanization of society beginning to take place right here. We think of the word city and we don't think about Medina, we think about Detroit. But remember, this is one family that settles down, begins to put down roots, begins to build walls, begins to eke out survival. And this is what we see. Now, the next few generations are covered for us in verse 18 there. It says, To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushiel, and Methushiel fathered Lamech. As we read this list of names, we can be tempted to think that these were the only ones that were born during this time. But each one of these names represents the firstborn of the next generation. Just like with Adam and Eve, we see Cain. He is the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation. And so we see these generations being born. Now, as we see these generations being born, we count this number and think, well, that must be it. But, you know, as they were having kids, their kids were having kids, and their kids were having kids. And 
multiplication was beginning to take place. Cain and Abel are still having kids at this time. Adam and Eve are still having kids at this time. So the population of the earth is growing. The earth is being populated. The earth is being filled as we read these different generations going on. So the society is growing as we look at these different generations. Now, the narrative kind of focuses on Lamech. It says, And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Now, as we look at this, we are introduced for the first time to polygamy. For the first time, we see bigamy, where a man takes more than one wife while still being married to his first wife. Notice it says Lamech took two wives. Again, we see this formal union taking place. It doesn't say that he was with just two girls. There was a formal union here. It has been argued that man evolved from a polygamy type of society and we took on a monogamy-type society. But you know, when we go back to the book of Genesis, where it all began, we see God had a design. God's original design was for one man and for one woman. We read this in Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You see, God had a design for marriage. God had a design for man and for woman to step out and to enter into this union together. One man and one woman. But it's amazing as we look at this and we see just this few generations later how God's design for marriage has already began to go away. It has been corrupted and it continues to drift away. It's not too hard for us to understand as we look at this example here, to see why God said in Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Right here at this moment, we are seven generations. We are in seven generations. And yet, we see this kind of contamination already. When we get to Genesis chapter 6 and see God destroy the world with the flood, we understand just how widespread the contamination was. We also see here how 
contaminated the human heart is because of sin. Because once Adam and Eve rebelled against God and, and they were touched with the sin nature, that sin nature was passed on to the next generation. And when there's no turning back to God, when there's no repentance, when there's no drawing back to God, this is the result. Corruption. Contamination. Interesting that we read Romans 1 this morning. And we look at what takes place in the world as it's contaminated. The result of man being left to serve sin. It's no wonder we are where we are. This doesn't have something to do with just my generation. This doesn't have something to do with just the millennial generation. This has something to do with sin. And it's been present since Adam and Eve came into the world. What we saw on the news this morning, nothing new. Nothing new. The corruption that we see today has been present since the beginning, since Adam and Eve took part and ate of that fruit that they were not to eat of. Lamech has children. So it's in verse 20, Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Namah. Now, as we look at this, we see Lamech and his two wives bore at least four children. These are the four children that the narrative focuses on for us. Three boys and one girl. Jabal was the father of, twin, of, of twin dwellers, of tent dwellers. Uh, they call them dwellers. That's the Hebrew word, is dwellers. These tent dwellers, they raised livestock. Now, these wouldn't be sheep that they would be raising. Uh, they, would they would raise livestock, domesticated animals. Jabal was the first cattle rancher. And he was a tent-dwelling society. His family were tent dwellers. I made that mistake one time, and I just I have to slow down every time now. It's going to be dwellers every time. They were the first group to go out in tents. They left behind the, the city dwelling. Because as you think about the, the um, landscape at this time, this is pre-flood. So vegetation was good, things were well, and they would move from place to place with their livestock, letting them graze and letting them eat what was there. And so as cattle ranchers, they moved with their livestock around. And so that's why they still lived in tents as they moved from place to place with their livestock. Now it says Jubal, the next brother, was a musician. He played the lyre 
which would have been a, a stringed instrument, something like a, like a harp. Uh, one Hebrew word also is translated violin. So it's a stringed instrument here that he made and that he constructed and that he played. And he also played the pipe, which would have been a, like a, a flute or some kind of, uh, of wind instrument that would be played. Think about this. Adam and Eve, the first two. Then we have Cain. And then we have the next, we, we have a few generations in there. And then here they are. And they are creating and making these musical instruments. Now, as we think about music, I'm not, I'm not very talented in the music area. But think about it. When I play the piano, I play just different keys. And it's no music. It's just noise. But when the girls play it, it's music. Because there's that thing called a scale. And they play in different ways. And you know, as they play those notes close to each other, it sounds like harmony. But when they skip places, it doesn't sound so good. Think about that mindset. That's something that Jabal learned, something that he did as he fashioned these instruments together. Tubal Cain is the next brother mentioned there. And he was the forger of instruments. Tubal Cain forged instruments. Now, depending on your translation, if you have the NIV on your lap, it says Tubal Cain who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. He was the first one to make tools. He was the first one to make weapons. Now, think about this for a moment. When we think about a tool or a weapon of war, we run down to the local hardware store, grab ourselves a shovel. But think about this. There were no hardware stores. He had to go find the raw materials. And he had to melt those raw materials. And he had to cast them into tools. Those are things that, that we kind of take for granted. But they did not. Job chapter 28, verses 1 through 2 say this, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper smelted from the ore. His expertise in metalwork would have been very valuable. He had that knowledge. He had that knowledge. Naamah was their sister. We don't have any information about her, but she is mentioned there. It's amazing to me 
as I look at this generation of, of people, it's amazing to me the knowledge that they had. We may be tempted that we are the smartest generation there has ever been. Because there are so many things that we have. So many things that we're able to do that, that prior generations have not been able to do. But you think about these three and where they were and how they began and the things that they produced. There was a great amount of knowledge these men had. And as we look through the ages of mankind, it's amazing the things that they were able to accomplish without a nail gun, without a computer. There is a great amount of knowledge given here to these men that God gave to these men. And as you think about them living for hundreds and hundreds of years, up to 800 years, the knowledge that they obtained was, was knowledge that they could perfect. It was knowledge that they could improve on. And they had the years to improve on it. Perfecting their professions. And we see what this society was able to do even in the early stages. Now we read about Lamech's crime in verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. How would you like to be referred to that, wives? You may try that this afternoon. Hi, wife of Darren. If I'm not around tonight for the fifth Sunday hymn sing, somebody drop by, check on me, would you? Anyway, he speaks to his wives. He says, wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is seventy-sevenfold. As we read this, there is a reminder here of the downward spiral of sin. Sin has a way of doing that to us. When we commit a sin, there is a result of that that leads in a downward spiral. And if we allow our sin nature to lead us, that downward spiral continues. And that downward spiral picks up speed. And that's exactly what Lamech has done right here. As you look at your Bible there and you look at what just Lamech just said there, is it indented in your copy of the Scriptures? There's two people awake. And they're afraid that I'm going to ask them to read. So they're like... What that shares with us and shows us is that this was a poem that Lamech wrote. It's not a romantic poem. It's not a not a sweet poem. In fact, he comes home and says, Wives of Lamech. And he shares this poem 
about his sin. He's kind of bragging about the sin. He's proud of the sin that he's committed. He's so proud that he's gone to poetry just so it would be remembered. Now notice it says, I have killed a man for wounding me. This word that's used here for wounding me doesn't give off any indication that it was a fatal wound. And then it says, a young man for striking me. So he was somewhat wounded and he was struck by someone younger than him. And yet, in his anger, in his moment of vengeance, he kills them both. comes home after his murder, puts together a little poem, and shares that with his wife, both of them. And then he shares Cain's revenge is sevenfold and Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. You see, he sees that as a badge of honor. That's how far he has fallen. That this notch in his belt is a better notch and a bigger notch and a more valuable notch than the one that he sees in Cain's. Interesting that Lamech named, named one of his sons Tubal Cain, using the name Cain there. Naming his son after Cain. He's kind of proud of that. And that's where Lamech is. I read a thing this last week. I didn't like it much, so I tried to ignore it, but it's something that's stuck in my head. How often when we watch different TV programs or when we think about people in our lives. How often do we find humor in their sin? How often do we see their sin as, as funny? In a sense, we kind of do the same thing that, that Lamech has done. We kind of overlook sin. We forget that sin is what separates us from God. We forget that God sent His Son Jesus Christ into this world because of the destructiveness of sin. And that's what Lamech does. Cain's line comes to an end. We don't read anything about how long Cain's family lived the narrative just comes to an end. Cain's line possessed great wisdom. As you look at them, they accomplished great things in the secular world. All of their accomplishments were only temporary. 
None of those accomplishments were they able to enjoy for long periods of time. It came to an end. Not a single member of Cain's family survived the flood. All of them perished. So that's the secular society. Next we want to look at the sacred society. Verse 25 says this, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and she called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. The narrative moves from the line of Cain back to Adam and Eve, and it begins to follow the line of Seth. Seth is the next child that's mentioned in the line of Adam. And Seth's line represents the sacred society. Obviously, as we look at this, and it's understandable, the loss of Abel is still very much in their hearts. Seth, they view as Abel's replacement. And you know, they're still holding on to that promise. The promise that God had given them. And maybe Seth would be that one, that promised son, who would crush the head of the serpent. Verse 26 continues, and it says, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Seth married a sister, a different sister, and as a result, Enosh is born. The line of Seth would be preserved through Noah. There is nothing mentioned here about the secular accomplishments of Seth's children. We don't see anything about scientific developments. We don't see anything about any earth-shaking contraptions. We don't see them develop anything in regards to the family fortune, great wealth being a part of Seth's family. But we do read this in verse 26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. There's a reference here to worship. Again, people will share that religion has evolved. We've gone from a society that worshipped multiple gods to a society that worships one God. And we still have those multiple gods that are worshipped. As we go back to the beginning, in the beginning, our ancestors worshipped the one true God. As we drew further and further away from the one true God, we began to worship multiple gods. We began to worship gods made in our own image. We couldn't decide which god we wanted to worship, so we developed many gods. And again, it's amazing that we read in Romans 1 this morning that people stopped worshiping the Creator 
and they begin to worship the created. But in the beginning, there was one God, and the people worshiped one God. And notice it says, they began to call upon the name of the Lord. I love that. Look what it says in Romans 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, in the line of Seth, there were people who believed God. And they trusted God. And they placed their faith in God. And they were saved. And they were saved. What a contrast between Seth's family line and Cain's family line. Not all of Seth's line would worship God because when we get down the line and we come to Noah, only eight people got on the boat with Noah. But there were some of Seth's family that knew God and they died before the flood. But only eight would get on the boat and only eight would survive the flood. So there you have it. The beginning of society. There is a secular society that had their backs turned on God and went away from God and their behavior showed it. And there was a sacred society. A society that turned to God and they called out to God and they called on the name of God. So what do we take home from this? What do we apply to our Sunday afternoon? I think the first thing that we, we got to remember is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, as we read Scripture, as we look at Scripture, and, and we let people tell us what they believe, how it all began, it's important that we remember, in the beginning, God. <laughs> That's where it's at. That's where we've got to stand. That's what we've got to stand upon. No matter what the teaching is, no matter what comes about, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Period. No question mark. Period. Secondly, a family line that doesn't call on the name of the Lord will perish. Calling on the name of the Lord is something that each of us must do individually. I remember visiting with a young man who had a son. And this young man I knew was raised in a home where, where the family called on the name of Jesus. And many in that family were saved. And this young man, as he was starting his own family, he was not in church. There was nothing in his life that would show us that he trusted Christ with his life. And one day I was visiting with him and I, I asked him, 
how are you going to train your son up? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, I said, if you don't teach your son about Jesus Christ, who will? No one else is going to do it. You can't send him to school and expect him to learn about Christ in school. You can't send him to church and expect him to learn about Christ in church. You've got to be the one actively training him about who Jesus Christ is. You've got to make that effort. And you know, as we look at our families, as we look at our kids, as we look at our grandkids, we have to be the ones pointing them and teaching them that they need to call on the name of Jesus Christ for their salvation. Because if you won't do it, who will? Who will? Us as parents, as we deal with the generation that we are in charge of to raise, it's our responsibility. Us as grandparents, maybe our parents aren't, our kids aren't doing parenting like they should. We've got to take advantage of those opportunities to point our grandkids towards Jesus. Teaching them and training them so that one day they will call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. A society that refuses God spins downward away from God. At the turn of the century, 1900, because of the evolution and the, the uh, industrial revolution that was taking place, many people began to believe that society was getting better. And eventually, society would be so good that it would just come to God and we'd have a utopia of God-centeredness. I don't know if you looked out the window today. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. The opposite has taken place. A society that refuses God spins downward. And that's the truth. And we see that today. And we look out and we wonder, man, why is the world so bad? It's because we have forsaken God. Why is there evil in the world? If God is such a loving God, why is there evil in the world? There is evil in the world because we keep going away from God. That's why there's evil in the world. It all began in the garden, and it just continues to domino away. Secular accomplishments are only temporary. You know, maybe some of the wisdom that they had as far as raising livestock and raising crops and, and being able to work with metal and, and forge all of those things, maybe some of that wisdom was passed down through the generations and, and maybe that's why we're here today with the metal things we have. But they left it behind. They couldn't take it with them. The only thing that we can take with us is Jesus Christ. If we leave this earth without Christ, we will spend all of eternity wishing 
we had Christ. I was visiting with David Durling, and he was visiting with the family, and there was a man who was dying. He had cancer or some fatal disease, and it was clear that he was not going to make it. And so David had the opportunity to, to share the gospel with this man. And he doesn't know if this man trusted Christ in his life or not. But that man passed away. And David had the opportunity to visit with the family. And he, said, he told the family, he said, I have something I want to share with you. And he said, I shared this with your dad or your mom, whoever it was. And he said, I know without a shadow of a doubt that they would want me to tell you this. And he said, you know what? That is the truth. He didn't know if this man trusted Christ or not, but he knew that that man stepped into eternity. If that man stepped into eternity and he trusted Christ, wow, what an awesome thing. I hope someone tells my family. If he stepped into eternity without Christ, he would have said, wow, I should have listened. I hope someone tells my family. I don't know where you are today, but as you look at society, as you see the downward spiral of society, there's a reminder here that left to ourselves, we go the opposite direction of where God would have us to go. Because we have a sin nature. That's where we go naturally. But God didn't want us to go that way. God did not want us to turn our backs on Him and walk away from Him. God wanted us to have a relationship with Him. And God sent His Son Jesus Christ into this world so that we could have a relationship with God. I don't know where you are in your journey, but if you've never turned to Christ and trusted Him as your Lord and as your Savior, I want to encourage you to do that today. Don't leave home. Don't leave this world without knowing for sure where you'll spend eternity. Because Jesus Christ is the only one that we can trust, that we can place our faith in, that has guaranteed us eternal life. There's no other choice. Won't you turn to Christ today? Don't be like the line of Cain. Call out on the name of the Lord while you still can.